there's going to be more and more complex algorithms that are able to actually mimic some of our human capabilities better than a human being. Alex Shi has a personal mission to democratize artificial intelligence. His curiosity and forward-thinking style led him to be one of the most influential leaders on AI in Montreal and in the world. He states that AI is a great tool that offers great opportunities to do good, and he wants to use AI to provide better services to people around the world. As a director of solutions and corporate development at Element AI, Alex leads the company's strategic partnership to offer a scalable, customizable, and sustainable suite of core AI-enabled products for the world's biggest organizations. In this podcast, he shares valuable advice with everyone who wants to work with artificial intelligence. So a fun fact is we figured out that we went to the same primary school in California, which I, I would never have expected, one, to be in Montreal to find someone that did that, and two, to be the person that interviews me tonight. So that's pretty good. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's really funny. I grew up in a really different setting. So I actually grew up in my um, grandparents' home. So my grandparents were, had passed away, but my mother had taken back the home. And we transformed it into a bed and breakfast. So every morning, I'd wake up with nine new people at home, and I'm not a morning person. So I had to get used to speaking with these different, diverse, interesting people from around the world. Um, and I think that it's shaped a lot of what I've been able to do now. Um, and it's been, I would say I love, and I've always loved to meet new people and to hear their stories and understand where they come from. And that's actually served me a lot as um, I was a lawyer, and then uh, I worked in venture capital, and now I'm working at a startup. And in each of those roles, um, what you realize is that the people that you help out, the people that you give to without asking anything in return, the people that you get to know and to meet throughout that journey, um, impact you and move you in directions that you could have never expected. And so for me, a kid from LA ending up in an AI startup in Montreal, I don't think anybody could have could have written that down and, and actually believed that it was possible. Yeah, that's awesome. That's it's quite the story. Um, so let's talk about uh, your educational background a little bit. I know that after Los Angeles, you moved to Quebec and um, then pursued legal studies. You were um, president of the student association at the ripe age of 18. At what point did you know that you wanted to kind of delve into tech um, and how? At what point did you know that um, you, you kind of had the legal background, but you wanted to then move into uh, the tech, tech sector? It's funny because I think a lot of you guys have had this kind of awakening where you want to change careers. Um, and that happened to me when I was doing law, uh, well, law school, and then after that when I was a lawyer. And I was just in my office writing documents, marking up documents, and I realized that it wasn't something that, pa that I was passionate about. And what I was passionate about was working with startups. So what I actually did was on nights and weekends, I'd do pro bono work for companies that I believed in, people that I believed in. And what ended up happening was that at one point in time, I said to myself, look, this law thing is really not for me, so I'm going to make a switch. And the moment that I said that, I actually announced it to a few of the startups that I was working with, and one of them said no. Like, no, what do you mean no? I don't want to, I'm going to quit, so it's going to be done. And um, François Rabtai, uh, one of the co-founders of Expertsy, had just received an investment from Real Ventures. And he said, I'm going to talk about you to my investors. So the next morning, I actually got a call at uh, about 
eight o'clock in the morning. And as you guys remember, I'm not a morning person. So I, I took it and I was like, what is this call? Why are you calling me? And it was Real Ventures. And it was um, this founder had seen the work that I was doing and said, this guy, he has the potential. I had no financial background. I loved startups. I read everything TechCrunch. I read books. Everything that I could consume, I would take in. But I didn't, I didn't really know how to crunch numbers. And I wasn't a perfectly trained VC. But that's what they're good at, finding people with potential. And so they said, we're going to take a bet on you. And I had a three-month probation period. And two years later, I was still, still there. So, you know, it was a very haphazard. I could have never expected to be there. And it was very much because I had been helping people that I got there. Yeah, it's crazy that sometimes it's a combination of luck and timing. Um, and so let's fast forward a couple years. Now you're a mentor at Founder Fuel, among others. You know, Cite Montreal, Techstars, Front Row Ventures. Um, so you kind of um, entered the space of AI relatively early um, compared to the technology. What are some of the projects that you've seen experience the most growth and, and potential and, and kind of walk us through maybe some of the more, more exciting ventures that you've been a part of? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky. So when I was at Real Ventures, they had an accelerator called Founder Fuel. If you guys don't know about it, it's worth going to their demo day here in Montreal. Happens twice a year, it's super exciting. And as I started, um, understanding more and more of the space, I would meet more and more startups. So I got very lucky and I met with about 1,400 companies and trying to understand the AI space, trying to understand the startup space in Canada. And what I realized was that there were some clear applications um, in a few fields of artificial intelligence that were really moving the needle. One of them is in computer vision. So if you think of artificial intelligence, what is it? Um, and actually, I'm just going to do like a shameless plug here. I do have a podcast on that subject. So if you guys want to go in, super interesting. Um, but more like concretely, artificial intelligence is trying to replicate human capabilities in a computer. So capabilities are like the ability to see, to hear, to understand, to make decisions. So computer vision is where some of the most cutting edges advances have happened and have been applicable to real-world situations. The ability to recognize, to segment, to determine things with your eyes is something that we naturally do. And so in the commercial setting, you can look at a retailer that is, for example, identifying the people that are coming to their store and maybe helping them choose the right products, depending on what their profile is. Or, for example, um, you can take, uh, you know, maybe you have an interaction with a game and they see your face and they're able to adjust kind of the level of difficulty depending on your emotions. Um, so there's tons of uses of artificial intelligence and computer vision and that was one of the first like real applications that I could see. And when I saw that, I started digging. And what I realized was that Montreal was an epicenter of artificial intelligence in the world. And that some of the key players had been involved in startups and in academia, but they hadn't started anything in a really long time. 
Yeah, um, it's really astonishing to kind of see how far AI's come um, since maybe 2011. I know um, one of the researchers that you might know personally, Yoshua Benjo, who's um, you know a great mind in the field, actually saw that he struggled to find funding at first back in 2007 for the deep learning um, research he, he was kind of doing. Um, to just kind of see um, AI go from more of a theory to in 2012, I'm thinking of like speech recognition on Android phones and different things like that. Um, how have you seen AI kind of grow since 2012? And where do you see it go? Where are the, where are the avenues that provide kind of the highest levels of potential? Yeah, so right now what we're seeing is that there is a, a huge shift in the artificial intelligence landscape because of two key factors, or three key factors. The first being compute power. So we saw that computers can process much more quickly the algorithms that had been developed in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. Secondly, there was a plethora of data available. So actually, 90% of the data on the internet that's currently available was produced in the past two years. So we're seeing an explosion in the quantity of data. And the saying is, no data, no AI. So you need data to do artificial intelligence. And third, the research was advancing at a, at, a, at a blazing pace. So that's what was happening at that time. And as that was evolving, as data was becoming more available, as compute cycles were becoming cheaper, and as cloud providers were, were making this available to, to the masses, we saw more and more commercial applications. Where we're going now is, I think, towards, there's kind of two branches. So one of them is that it's going to become much more um, commonplace to integrate artificial intelligence in some of the tools and software that we deploy. And then secondly, there's going to be more and more complex algorithms that are able to actually mimic some of our human capabilities better than a human being. And in vision, that's already been proven out. But there are tons of different use cases that still need to be proven. And with that, we'll see kind of the way that we interact with technology completely change. Let's bring it back a little bit to your podcast. I know you've um, had several uh, you know, chances to interview really cool people and doing, working on amazing projects in this space. What was kind of the ins inspiration to start the podcast and where do you see it growing and, and going in the future? Yeah, so just to give you guys a sense, there's a, a season that we put out. It took a year to actually build out. Took a lot of time and love into that. And what it was was really simple. I was at a family dinner back in Quebec City. And my aunts and uncles looked at me and they just read, one had read a sci-fi book. The other one had just read something in the newspaper. And they had no idea what AI was. And the answer that I was giving them was nothing really compelling. And it didn't really help them understand better. So I realized that I was really bad at explaining. <laughs> and that they wanted to understand. So like anything, when there's a gap between supply and demand, you can fill it. So what I did was I went around and spoke with thought leaders uh, that I admired. It took time to reach out to them. But finally, we assembled this amazing group of people that would just speak of what can AI actually do? How does it apply to the real world? And who are those voices that we haven't heard about? And so we did that, and now it's out. But I think going forward, the objective is to really, and this is part of the mission of, of the company that I work at and with the people that I work at, is to democratize artificial intelligence.
And that doesn't just mean about technology, it means about understanding and the avenues of possibility. We have a very dystopian view about what the world will look like with artificial intelligence. There's such great opportunity to do good. There's such great opportunity to move forward what, we're, what we already have and to provide better services to people around the world. And so that's kind of the objective, to recast artificial intelligence and the domain in the light which I think it really is, which is more positive, but also address the fact that there's a real doomsday narrative around it. And that, in the first episode, we have Daniel Gross, who sold his company to Apple when he was 18 years old, headed up machine learning there, and now as a partner at Y Combinator, speak about what that means for him. With Yashua Bengio, one of the three people that invented deep learning. So to give you an idea of kind of the caliber of the people that are involved, but also to give you guys a sense that it's super accessible. And my mom loves the show beyond the fact that it's me, but because she really understands. And my aunts and uncles now have these really great discussions with me about what the future could look like. And that for me is really important. It's in this era where each and every one of you guys are determining how to use technology to advance your own kind of ideas or your objectives, and you see it as this great tool. AI is a tool. It is a tool that you can make many things with. So what are you going to do with it? One of the proje projects uh, that you featured on your podcast really caught my eye, and that was the Ubenwa project. Um, and just to give a, a, a summary, Ubenwa essentially tries to fix birth uh, asplexia, sorry, uh, birth asphyxia by um, by kind of recognizing baby cries um, through sound recognition. And I thought that that was one of the projects that has tangible evidence of kind of putting a positive spin on AI. Um, can you speak a little to that project and others that you've seen that really put a humanitarian but also like a positive spin on AI? So we call that the Shazam for babies. And so what it does is that it actually recognizes. So birth asphyxia is like one of the top three um, causes of death of newborns. And what it is essentially is a lack of oxygen to the brain. It can either cause them to have physical or mental repercussions that are, you know, follow them throughout their lives so they can die. So Charles C. Onu, who's actually a student here in, in Montreal in his 20s, grew up um, in, in, in a country where he didn't have electricity every day. And when he did, it was only for a few hours. But he was passionate about artificial intelligence. So what he did was that he took books, would code by hand, input them into a computer when he had one hour of energy, and would figure out whether he was able to move forward. He learned on his own how to code. He learned how, on his own how to do deep learning with MOOC courses that like the one that Andrew Ng has. And he, but he felt a, like an urge and a need to do something that was important for him. And to use this tool for something that was important for him. And for him, in his country, too many babies were dying of birth asphyxia. So he decided to, to, to tackle that problem head on. But as I mentioned earlier, you need data to do AI. So who's categorizing and looking at baby cries? He had to go to Mexico to find a small database that they had gone through and tagged everything and figured out which babies had birth asphyxia and which ones had, like, didn't. So he used that, 
And he built a database and then built an algorithm to start recognizing this. And he's just at the beginning of his project. But what I found inspiring about him was, one, with nothing, he made something. Now he's at McGill at one of the best, studying under uh, Doina Perkiu, who's one of the best professors in artificial intelligence in the world. He learned how to code by hand, inputting it into a computer when he had one hour of electricity a day, running around with his desktop computer. He's doing something that matters to him and that has purpose. And he's using artificial intelligence as a tool to accomplish his goal. And he's not limited by anything. He'll go to any country in the world to make this happen. And when you see something like that, whether with your program, just learning how to, how to, you know, to code, but go beyond that, the real thing that's a driver and that's important, whatever you guys decide to do, is use the tool to do something that you're passionate about, that you really care about, and it'll move the needle. Yeah, um, that, that's certainly an ex inspiring story. It seemed that in his case, the limitation there was kind of data collection. Now, I know that startups face other problems, um, whether it be funding um, or, you know, other problems. What, what are the kind of the main challenges startups face? And how do you see startups kind of coexisting with the big players um, in the space now and then moving forward? So when I was an investor at Real Ventures, what we noticed was that, or what I was looking for actually, was the formula for success. So I thought, if I'm going to be one day an entrepreneur, might as well go to a, a VC, learn exactly what to do, leave there, and then make a billion dollar startup. What I realized is there's no formula. There are a lot of pitfalls and there's a lot of mistakes. And a lot of them come up again and again and again. One of the key things that I noticed would allow for success is a great team. People that have worked together, that have collaborated together, that know each other's strengths is key to success. After that, understanding the competition in the market, that's key. So what you were mentioning, there's some big players in the artificial intelligence space. But look at Salesforce. They launched Einstein. I don't think I've met one company that was, that's actually using it. Look at IBM. Billions of dollars of market cap launched IBM Watson. Haven't heard one good story of them implementing. There's tremendous opportunity. And it's not because big players are in this space that you have to be intimidated by that. But you have to have a good idea. You have to have clear need in the market. And you have to have a great team. If those three things align, you have about 10% chance that you'll be successful. And that's also a thing to consider. Many, 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 many startups fail. It's okay, but it's also something that you have to keep in the back of your mind when you're starting one. It's not easy. It looks easy, but it's not. Every single person that was successful had been working for 5, 10, 15 years in the space, and usually their startup had been in existence for two to three years before they got funding. So it's tough, but it's worth taking the risk. It's worth driving in that direction. And especially if you want to gain experience in that and you want to learn what it's like to be at a startup, go contribute to one. Go somewhere that they're already in effervescence, they're already growing, they have funding, or maybe it's just an idea that you really believe in, and go work there. And I think that's the first investment you should make if you're thinking about starting a company or you're thinking about getting into the space. Start by working in one. Now, from a legal perspective, 
Um, I'm sure a lot of these startups are um, kind of wanting to create their own patents. Um, in kind of the ecosystem of AI, do you see, how do, how does, how do the small players kind of work and kind of integrate in with like the Googles and the Amazons who create patents at a rapid rate, who kind of have the, have the funding to, to grow exponentially? So how, how do small companies kind of play a role? So it's very interesting because the IP landscape in artificial intelligence is very unique. So when I was a lawyer, I did two things. I did financing for startups and for large companies that would go public. And then a portion of my work was in intellectual property. So I wouldn't say that I'm an expert, but I do have some experience. And one thing that always was um, kind of put forward was this idea of patent. Patent everything that you have. In the AI community, there's actually a reverse thinking. Because there was very little financing during a long period of time, researchers published openly their research. So there's actually this idea of an open AI community. So it's actually not that difficult to understand the cutting edge of the state of the art in, art, uh, in artificial intelligence. And many of the patents are around the ways to utilize that. But it's not a field where there's a lot uh, I would say there's a lot to be patented, but it's not something that should stop you from starting. And I would say that if you're interested in this space, if you want to get involved, just go and see what, you know, one, buy Yashua's book, Deep Learning, or don't, because it's free online. Easy. First book that was ever uh, MIT uh, Press, first time a book ever sold out in their history. So it's free online. So one, there's no excuse. The barrier to entry is very low. Take a, a course and just try. And if Google sues you, I bet you that the cease and desist letter will also come with an offer to buy you. So if you're that good, don't worry. Things will go well. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about Element AI. Um, how does your day-to-day -day look like? And do you enjoy um, the different projects you're working on? Can you talk a little bit about kind of who you're working with currently and where you, where you guys are thinking of going in the future? So there are things that I can disclose and things that I cannot disclose, so I'll make it mysterious. <laughs> um, so I joined Element AI when it was a, so I'll give the maybe why I'm at Element and then I'll give you a sense of the day-to-day. -day. So one, the day-to-day -day is crazy and it's a lot of fun and it's exciting and I never know what I'm gonna do the next day, so tomorrow I'm not quite sure what my schedule looks like and what I'm gonna be doing, but it's phenomenal. Element AI started out of the idea of a few people. And I was lucky enough to be sitting next to one of them. So JF Gagne was actually an entrepreneur, our CEO, was an entrepreneur in residence at Real Ventures. And he decided that amongst all the seats that he would sit would be next to mine. It might be because that was the only one left, but he did. And I had amazing conversations with him about his vision about, around artificial intelligence. And that was spawned by about 15 years of experience in the space. And he was very close to Yashua Vengio, Nicolas Chapados, Philippe Baudouin, Gabriel Dufort, Anne Martel, and the founders of Element. And I had done research with him, given that I was working side by side. We looked at about 3,000 companies, and we realized that there was a huge gap. That at first we believed IBM Watson was going to be able to fill. And that was enterprise AI. So the ability to look at problems um, in the enterprise, in specific verticals, and solve them end-to-end. -end. 
So not being a component provider like Google uh, or Amazon on their cloud services, but doing end-to-end -end solutions. And what we noticed was that there were kind of no companies trying to productize that. So there's a huge opportunity. Everybody that's going out uh, after it right now is looking at a service model. But that, that in itself is not very scalable, as you can imagine, because you're dependent on software developers that will do custom solutions. So how do you take the most cutting edge research and industry insight, and how do you apply it using AI? And that's what the, the inception of Element AI was. And that's what we do. So that came up and it was seven people. And when it was about 14, Jeff came back to see me and said, look, would you like to join? And I thought about it. And I said to myself, this is unique. After having done all this research and looking into the space, this is really something special. So I joined. And between the time that I joined, they were 30. And now we're about 360, close going to 500 or 600 by the end of the year. It's one of the fastest growing startups in Canada. And we're recruiting talent from all over the world. And we're only, uh, throughout our process, we're retaining 1%. So we have some of the best minds in the world working not far from here on some of the most interesting projects around the world. And so my day-to-day, -day, once I joined, became actually something very, very funny. Was that just before I actually joined Element, so before entering the offices, I took a plane to Tokyo. And on that plane, I walked in to go on vacation, and I heard my name. And I recognized the voice. It was GF, <laughs> the CEO of the company that I was about to work with, the guy that I'd been sitting next to. And he said, Alex, what are you doing going to Tokyo? I said, Jeff, what are you doing going to Tokyo? And it was the beginning of our fundraising process, our Series A. So actually, after that flight and the 14 hours that it took to get there, we had, we had gone to the, kind of the next level of what the strategy was and where we were going. And I really got an insight even more than I'd even known about the company that I was joining. And after that trip and a few others with him there, I was actually tasked to open Asia. So I'd lived in Singapore, studied in China, and it was a huge opportunity. But the first time I landed in Korea, I had never been there before, and I was told that I had to find clients and open an office. It was pretty daunting. Now we have an office established there and in Singapore. We have marquee clients, uh, one of, uh, three of which I can, I can speak about publicly, which are Hyundai Motors, and the Hyundai Group in general, SK Telecom, which is one of the largest conglomerates in, in Korea, and Hanwha, which is a chemical manufacturer. And those were just actual conversations, getting out of a taxi, trying to pitch the idea. And so from, from now, uh, from well, the beginning to now, it's been a, an amazing roller coaster. And now that we have these offices open, I'm working on other projects. But my day-to-day -day was a lot of traveling, a lot of understanding the business, a lot of listening. Listening to client problems, understanding where they're going, and then figuring out ways that we can work together. We kind of touched on this, but uh, you mentioned kind of the democratization of data and the fact that it's, ac uh, it's accessible by kind of the global community to whoever wants to learn it, whether it's on Coursera, Udemy. To what extent do you attribute that component to the growth you've seen in, in startups and projects you've worked on? 
Well, I think the, the big issue that a lot of the tech giants and a lot of companies saw was that it's really great to have the best computers in the world. It's really great to have all this data. But at this point in time, if you don't have anybody to actually code, it's not going to go anywhere. And so there was a huge need to bring in new talent into the field. And uh, the MOOC platforms, edX, Coursera, others, were really a catalyst towards opening this up to many people. So I think you're right. It, it was, that was a key in the success of an industry. I mean, it's crazy. You take a nano degree in self-driving cars, and the average salary is $250,000. For people that are thinking about changing their careers or that have backgrounds, let's say we have a lot of people that have backgrounds or PhDs in physics. There are not very many jobs in physics, but they have all of the math and programming abilities that someone that wants to learn deep learning have. So it's like, it's perfect. It's the perfect match. So after three or four months, you can recycle yourself into a new career, which is in complete effervescence, and from there, go anywhere. And, you know, I've kind of noticed in this space that when you compare traditional companies to AI, there seems to be a gap in that traditional companies are still using antiquated systems. Um, and sometimes it's tough to adapt to, to AI when AI in itself is constantly evolving. Um, how have you seen companies or CEOs try to adapt to the ever-changing landscape of AI? So I think that the one important thing that people don't realize at, at the C-suite level, so at large companies, CEOs, is oftentimes they think AI is magic. So they'll sprinkle a little bit of AI here, a little bit of AI there, and it'll solve all the problems. That's not the way it works. Fundamentally, what artificial intelligence does is optimize between A to B. So you have an input, and you want an output, and it helps optimize faster, exponentially faster, and then helps adapt. So you don't need to reprogram. You don't need to, to send a patch. It just... It, adapts. So it's, it's, a, it's a complete shift, and CEOs have to embrace that and understand how it impacts their business, and they're just not planning for it. And so I think the first step is actually understanding the technology. Secondly is figuring out how it can be used in your business, and that drives many opportunities for entrepreneurs because there are hundreds of use cases that are that derive just from that exercise. And if you want to be an entrepreneur in the AI space, I'd encourage you to do one thing. Beyond all the other stuff, is take a business that you know, or work at a business and understand it better, and find the pain points that can be resolved with artificial intelligence. Oftentimes, if you put a few of those together, you have enough value creation to actually start a business. Now, machine learning, um, just recently has kind of taken on a life of its own as you know dozens of, co of, of companies have, have tried to adopt it um, and in essence it's, it's essentially a, a machine trying to replicate human behavior but still at a relatively primitive level to what extent and we're, we're drifting on we're, we're kind of getting to the more philosophical side side of AI but to what extent do you think a, ma a machine can one day be conscious and learn how to consciously not only um, replicate events, but for a machine to kind of have its own thoughts and um, kind of 
have the critical thinking to adjust and modify kind of on command, kind of like humans do. So I think, and this is not, I mean, this is an opinion derived by listening and reading to, you know, speaking with many experts but, and reading about it, the space and the research. I think we're very, very far away from that. We're very, very far, very, very far away from what people fear as being, you know, generalized artificial intelligence or the implications that really humans as a whole will be replaced by this. I mean, the way to think about it is this is like a hammer. So let's take a real metaphor of what artificial intelligence is. You have a hammer. I give you an electric hammer. You have, you know, X amount of nails. It takes, you know, much less time and it's more precise because it's an electric hammer than it is a normal hammer. So we're just, it's just a tool that it allows you to do certain specific things at human-like levels or beyond, but it's not yet all connected. And the idea of consciousness, one, is a very debated subject. And so it's very interesting because I was very fortunate to spend time with Yashua in Japan at a conference, and we took a train. And the conversation was around consciousness. And it's a very, very uh, abstract concept. And it's one where he's doing most of his research now. What makes us human? Can it be replicated in a machine? Still very open and unanswered questions. But to be very, very straightforward, we're not even close to anything that you see in the movies. I think we're much closer to an electric hammer than we are to anything that could, you know, construct a house. Yeah, uh, let's just touch on it a little more. So you have renowned experts, uh, Elon Musk, Stephen Hawking, that have warned about the potential dangers of AI if left unregulated, right? Do you see, first of all, do you see regulations playing a limiting factor in kind of the growth and, and the ventures that your group invests in? And, you know, just looking forward a little bit, um, do you kind of agree with their vision and the fact that it should be regulated at some point? So there's two really interesting points about that. One, I personally take the opinion that we need regulation, but smart regulation. At GAFA, so Google, Facebook, Amazon, are going the whole other way. They say self-regulation is the way. I'm not so confident in that. I think that government's roles are to come in and protect the average citizen and those that are in need. And I think it's really important that we keep that role and we make uh, we hold technology companies accountable, but we also create a system that opens up and allows for innovation. And there's this really, really interesting concept out of the UK, out of Cambridge, which is this idea of a data trust. So if you think of patents, patents encourage companies to innovate. But after a certain period of time, patents go into the public domain. So you see generics. Imagine if you could do the same thing with data, held in a trust where for an X period of time, data was held for a competitive advantage and then released for the public good. Then anybody, the barrier to entry for any startup would be extremely low, but we could start using data to do good. When it comes to dystopian views of the future, I think, and with all due respect to you know, like a Nobel prize winning physicist and probably one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world, I think it's a very naive perspective. Naive because the technology isn't there, but at the same time, I also think it's, it's very important and thoughtful. What it is is that it's like if I were to give you fire. You can burn down a house or you can keep yourself warm. 
It's a tool. It's a mechanism. The same way that artificial intelligence can amplify, can actually do things better than human beings. So if we look at circumstances like, for example, Russia intervening in, in the US elections, that's a really great example of flaws in algorithms. So what they did was that they put out fake data until algorithms saw it as truth and then would make it trend as the news. So there's real issues that need to be resolved both on the data side and on the algorithmic side. And there's even biases that are introduced. But all of those things can be solved. And it can be a tool, like we mentioned with Charles and others, to actually save lives, make our lives better. So I would challenge people to, instead of taking the lazy approach of just saying that the world is going towards uh, worse and worse, look at the science. Try to find ways to make our world a little bit better and use AI as that tool. Um, yeah, um, that's awesome. Um, so let's take it uh, maybe a step back um, and, and touch on kind of like your work at Element AI. I know it gets busy sometimes. Um, how do you kind of balance your leisure, your hobbies, and kind of the work associated with everything you do? That's a really good question. Um, and I should ask my girlfriend that, who will not necessarily agree with my answer. But uh, one of the things is um, I work on things that I'm very passionate about. So you mentioned all these accelerators, all these companies. If you're passionate and you love what you're doing, it's not work. And Element AI is not work. I have fun every single day. I get to meet interesting people. I get to work on real difficult problems. And that, for me, makes me really, really happy. At the same time, I'm a super social person. And I love, you know, grab a beer with friends or go out. I wouldn't say that I'm that much of a sportsman. I used to love basketball. That I've put aside a little bit. But I think the key thing is balance. And it's not balance all the time. It's about doing sprints. So that's the way that I see it, is I sprint through, deliver projects, come out of that, and we'll go on a weekend camping or a concert. You know, I'll be doing stuff that I really enjoy, spending time with friends. And even if you're working on the most important project, what I tell, because I have a team of 12 people that work for me, nobody's going to die if it's a day late. So putting things into perspective, being respectful. Uh, one of my colleagues just had a kid. I mean, he, he's overwhelmed by that already. I'm not going to add work onto it. People forget that we're just, we have the same experiences. And if you're respectful of that and if you give people space, I mean, it creates an amazing work environment. And that's what I try to do. If, if I'm working on a project and we have deadlines, put yourself in the other person that's working with you, shoes. If you need to put, push it harder and work later, that's okay, but then that person or even yourself deserves a three-day weekend. If you've been working 80 hours for the past few weeks, take a week off. I, I was in the middle of a big project, took three weeks off, didn't look at my email, nobody died, the project is still okay, everybody on the team were good. And that's actually a gauge of success. If, people on, if you're able to leave or you know, for X period of time and people are able to pick up the slack and do things, that means that as a manager, you're doing a good job and that you're working with the right people. And you're respectful of them and they're respectful of you. That's key. Thanks, Alex. Uh, that does it for my questions. I know the crowd's antsy and has plenty <laughs> of questions to ask you, but thanks so much for this portion of Thank things. you very much. Thanks for listening to Lewagon Live. 
Tune in next week for another episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe by hitting the subscribe button. 